Welcome to The Great Unknown, and we are sitting here doing a little Zoom interview again. We're going to do a little group chat because actually after we did the France series, very interestingly, Brittany, who'd been working in camps in Greece, got in touch with us and we thought we'd chat to them as well. I'm also sitting here with Wolf and Dom. Hello. Hi, James. (laughs) (laughs) And it's actually interesting because Dom... Don we had in the last episode just to chat because it's quite nice in, in this time to have other people on as well. It turns out that Dom actually knew Brittany. So Brittany, hello as well and welcome to the episode. Hello, thanks for having me. So Brittany, tell us why you're here on the podcast today. Who do you work with in Greece? What's the story? Mm, yeah, so I'm the founder of an NGO called Refugium and I came across you guys. I was listening to your as you said, your France series, which is all around refugees and the humanitarian and grassroots response. So I just reached out to you guys to see if you'd be interested in doing a chat with me and uh, yeah, kind of giving a perspective on what's happening in Greece. That's fantastic. So the first thing I want to ask is, how did you come to be in Greece yourself? What's your what's your personal journey to get there? That's a good question. Um, So I was studying um, my undergraduate degree in disaster management. And at that time, I honestly really thought that I would end up in development. That felt like my big passion. I thought I'd be uh, working in sub-Saharan Africa or something like that. And um, I graduated in 2016. And in in 2015, maybe you guys remember that really famous picture of um, Elan Kurdi, the the Kurdish toddler who drowned and his body washed up on uh, the shores of Turkey. That honestly just completely changed my path that um, was the first time that it really hit home wow how close this refugee crisis is you know people are coming to the shores of Europe and I really felt like I I had to respond and so I graduated in November 2016 and I moved out to Greece that December one month later and I've been there ever since. And so before you were before you were out in Greece as well, you knew Dom because you were out in the Philippines as well, is that correct? Yeah, we were doing post-disaster reconstruction after Typhoon Haiyan. Yeah, so we, uh, I was out there for about a year or so and Britt also came out for, how long were you out for Britt actually? Just a, just a month. A month or so, yeah, so we crossed paths then. So it was quite funny actually when you mentioned that we had this someone from an organisation interested in coming onto the podcast. I was like... Refugee, Brittany. I said that rings a lot of bells right now. (laughs) Oh yeah, we know each other. Yeah, we go way back. (laughs) So yeah, we volunteered out together in the Philippines, which was uh, also a really interesting experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's really nice actually. These these little connections. It's nice actually. It's it's quite nice just to be doing this today, and we're all sitting here in our own in our own sort of places because of uh, coronavirus, of course. So. Everyone's sort of been having a bit of a coffee and whatever else and just getting set up this morning. It's quite nice to actually have a chat with people as well and still find out more about what's going on in the world outside as well. Let's talk Refugium. Tell us mm-hmm. what tell us all about what Refugium is. What does Refugium do? So we are a sports NGO, so we provide exercise classes um with and for the residents of right now one refugee camp in in Greece, in Athens, it's called Malakasa. So yeah, how it, how it came to be is that, um, yeah, when I moved out to Greece, I worked with various different NGOs, um, predominantly um, non-formal education, working in uh, schools, in camps. Kind of through my work, I observed that 
of course, a lot of refugees have experienced trauma and have a lot of issues with mental health, absolutely. Um, and of course, this is super, super difficult to address. I mean, how do you even begin to start addressing the mental health needs of thousands of people? There are some psychological organizations, um, you know, that, that provide counseling and the rest, but it, it's so difficult to address because, you know, there's so many, in, in a typical, any given camp, there's so many different languages, you know, you could have Farsi, Arabic, Kurmanji, Surani, Pashtun, French. And so that's kind of one of one of the hurdles, um, let alone, you know, people's cultural expectations of mental health. You know, do you address it? Do we talk about it? Do we not? And so that just kind of got me thinking about how we can help these populations with addressing their mental health. And it came really easily to me that sport is just such a brilliant way to do it, not least because it's not openly advertising that you're addressing mental health. You know, it's not like come and have a football game and and, and sort out your anxiety, you know, it's just very open to everybody. You don't necessarily need any psychological training. It's, yeah, and anybody can join in. And it just seemed like a really simple answer to help try and address, you know, part of the problem. Our motto is exercise, endorphins and escapism. So exercise, obviously, refugium and um, endorphins, so the feel-good hormone that you get from exercising. And then we have a big emphasis on escapism as well. So, you know, whilst you're playing sports or what, you're doing team games or whatever, you, you're not necessarily thinking about your, your situation, you know, temporarily, you're able to get out of your head and, you know, not be thinking about your traumas and about your issues, etc. You can just be present in that moment. And we also have a big emphasis on taking residents outside of the camp itself to yeah just just be away from the camp be away from their settings a bit of escapism from you know the realities that they face as refugees so we offer things like swimming lessons in the summer stand-up paddleboarding basketball training in Athens playing at a professional football pitch uh, we offer a variety of sports a really big timetable which is um yeah, really cool. What's been the feedback from the refugees who partake in the classes? Like, how do they find it? Do they enjoy it? Uh, yeah, really positive feedback. So just because of the nature of the work and the nature of the the population that I work with, I, I do work predominantly with women. So when we first set up Refugee Gym, kind of did like a community outreach and engagement um, to get a bit of a consensus, you know, to see what people wanted. If indeed they did want a gym to be opened, and particularly from the women, the feedback that I get is that they're, they're really grateful to have a safe space, you know, somewhere where they can be just women and be free and, and take off their hijabs and, and dance and, you know, away from cultural expectations or even camp expectations. You know, we're, we're often expected to act in a certain way. And so a lot of the feedback I get from women is that they're very grateful to have this safe space and this time dedicated specifically for them. And for the men, they just love it, <laughs> you know? They just love to play volleyball and uh, play football and learn how to swim. And so yeah, really positive feedback all around. What is the take up by the residents, the percentage of people that are active and engaged in the programs that you produce? Hmm. I would say it's about 30%. Understandably, it, it fluctuates, you know, it's a very transient situation that we're dealing with. People come and go. Often people don't want to be in Greece, so they 
quite often trying to leave, um, but in a camp with approximately 3,000 residents, um, I would say we have a, approximately 1,000 uh, you know, participants in the, in the sports program, which is fantastic. We're often doing community engagement, you know, and so in the camp that looks like that looks like going to people's containers, going to people's tents, regularly handing out the timetable every fortnight or once a month, that kind of thing, and making refugium available to everybody, you know, so children are welcome, we have elderly people in the program as well. So I think that's why it's so hard. We really, really we're mindful of the fact that the population is constantly changing so we're always engaging with the people you know have you heard of refuge gym you should come here's a timetable and making it accessible to everybody as well we have disabled people coming too so yeah just making sure that anybody would be able to access this service it's i've just been really enjoyed reading a couple of the little stories from your annual report as well and there was and just highlighting the possibilities of what we can do when we do empower people and I think it's really amazing what you can do when you're giving people opportunities and it seems like that's exactly what you're what you're doing and you're you're letting it be run by people who are in the situation themselves so they're able to uh, focus on what they they need and you're just supporting them which I think is that's a beautiful model um, is there any particular challenges to that so yeah when I set up refuge gym I wanted to move away from the typical NGO model where they have a high reliance on international volunteers. And, you know, I do appreciate that some NGOs have to be run like that. Um, but I thought, you know, why, why shouldn't we empower people to use their own skills and their own knowledge to have this project run by themselves, you know, for their own community, they know best what they need. Um, and, you know, they know best their culture and their language. And so that's why I set up Refugim uh, to be run by refugees for refugees. So, yeah, as you pointed out already, we have uh, a high amount of staff and that can be difficult in itself because, as we've already touched on, you know, the transient nature, you could have a wonderful, wonderful sports teacher and then the next day, you know, they've they've been moved on to, they've been moved to permanent accommodation in Athens or they you know, have, have smuggled themselves to another country because they're desperately unhappy in Greece. And so there's there's never really that full security. And so and that de that definitely has become more evident um since I have been in the UK. Um and so all of all of my time in Greece and all of my time in Refugium, you know, really promoting that this be a community led project sustainable run by themselves for themselves um, and so I was quite surprised when I left um, the upset and a lot of people asking me to stay um, and particularly women saying that they wanted me to stay because it was safer for them when I was there um, which is a, a, a tragic truth of you know the refugee camp situation and I hadn't fully appreciated until I left you know how how much my presence could have an impact on women and and their safety and that's what I'd been trying to move away from you know not relying on me and you know an international person who doesn't live in the camp and and isn't Afghan or Iranian so when I left that really brought it home that's really hard yeah that's a yeah. that's a big big yeah. challenge and mm -hmm. it's something I think for me it comes back to to government support again is that often people are relying just on people like you and I, and that's quite a scary thought. Um, yeah. And I think everybody working in NGO organizations, in certainly in the refugee uh, uh, action sphere, is that 
yeah, it's just ordinary people. It's not enough government action. Mm-hmm, absolutely. What's interesting to me about refugee as well is that you have facilities and kind of following mm-hmm. on from the government thought, in, in Calais, you can't have any facilities because they prevent any building or any facility at all for refugees. So how, how does it work in Greece with the government? How are you able to have facilities? So how we, you have to have permission, like formal permission from the government to access a camp, to work in a camp. And so we, we obtained that. Actually, it's, it's a really interesting story. So if you, if you guys don't mind, I can tell it how Refugium kind of came to be. Um, so I was actually working as a, as a coordinator for an NGO called Foodkind. Um, who were working in in Malakasset camp and what we'd been asked to come into the camp to do was to work with unaccompanied minors so children who are in Greece without their families children under the age of 18 who because of their status being minors they didn't receive or they don't receive any uh, financial support so they don't have a cash card like an adult refugee or a refugee family would. And so their food came from army rations, which were, you know, nutritiously inadequate. Um, and so, yeah, we were we were asked to come in to work with unaccompanied minors to cook with them, provide nutritious meals and, you know, maybe do a, teach them how to cook a little bit for themselves. Um, and what's really interesting is that we tried so hard to reach out to these minors in the camp and they honestly just weren't interested. They would rather be playing PUBG with their friends or, you know, sleeping in, that kind of thing. It, it, it just clearly wasn't an interest from, you know, the people we were supposed to be reaching out to. And what was really interesting is because, so we would come into camp um, quite early in the morning and obviously it was too early to start cooking. So we thought, oh, what, what can we do before 12 o'clock, you know? Uh, so we just got out some like balls and some bats and some cricket gear. Um, and there was so much engagement in that, you know, not unaccompanied minors, but not, not just unaccompanied minors, but, you know, children, older people, adults, sometimes, you know, some old guys would come over and they were really engaged in that. And then would be quite peeved with us when we would have to put it away and be like, okay, you know, going to go get the minors now and start cooking. And so one day I had a meeting with the IOM and they, they called me in. So the IOM is the international organization for migration who, are they manage most of the camps in Greece they're, they're like a sub-branch of the of the United Nations and um, they sat me down and they said look Brit, this food program clearly isn't working you know <laughs> they're just not engaged whatsoever what do you propose you know you do about it and I was thinking well people are really engaged in the in the sports what do you think if we started up a, a sports program and they said yeah sure we'll give it a try and it was just pure luck, honestly, that in inside Malakasa camp, there was an empty building, that, like a permanent building in sight that nobody was using. And so they effectively handed over the keys to me and said, yeah, this can be your gym. And so that's how it came to be. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> really, really great. It was all yeah. very serendipitous, to be honest. Yeah, the stars aligned quite nicely for Absolutely, it. yeah. What does, like, what does a typical day or timetable look like on the actual ground as well so in the camp what does a day look like including sports um so a typical day would look like coming in to start the classes at 10 o'clock and the timetable is very much divided up into uh, classes and time dedicated to women to men to children generally 
as well as to girls and to boys. And so, yeah, that, that all just depends on our refugee staff and, you know, what time they can lead their volleyball training or their aerobics class or their Zumba class or their football training, that kind of thing. So we run uh, six hours a day, Monday to Friday, 10 till four. Um, generally, each class is about an hour long. So we, we, we typically do 30 classes a week. Um, and like I said, for, for including all of the demographic of the camp. Out of interest, what are your mm. most popular or impactful activities that you run? I would say women's aerobics class. That's every day at 10 o'clock. And particularly since Rukia, who's who's now our manager, she's on our on the ground manager. She so she started off as our kung fu teacher, and then a couple of women saw her in kung fu and were like, "Wow, you should you should take over aerobics. You're incredible." Um, and now she has, I would say, forty a class of like forty strong every single day coming, which is fantastic. And in the summer, our swimming classes are massively oversubscribed as well. So we offer swimming as a form of, it's called exposure therapy. So of course, a lot of refugees have experienced traumatic, uh, yeah, have had a traumatic experiences in the sea pertaining to their journey coming to Greece. A lot of them don't know how to swim. And so, uh, so I'm a trained, I'm a qualified swimming instructor. And so we, we take them to the sea in, uh, in big groups of about 10 you know they're 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 coming to terms with their fear of the sea and 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 addressing the trauma so yeah and they're always massively oversubscribed and it's always um it's been horrible you know come october november when it's it's too cold to be able to go to the sea anymore but we've still got a bunch of people lined up for the swimming lessons and we we have to promise them that they're next on the list you know the following spring it's great to have just programs people can voluntarily sign up to and it's just yeah. a bit of agency in choosing what they're doing do these swimming classes and some of the uh, hiking and trekking expeditions you do, do they take mm. place within the grounds of the camp or outside? No, those are outside. So that, that would be part of our key emphasis on escapism. So um, the, our hiking trips are, are, are nearby. They're in the Malacasta Mountains, but it's, yeah, we, we try as much as possible to take people outside of the camp settings itself. I had sort of one more question. What are the challenges that you are currently facing, both in terms of the government in Greece and indeed coronavirus? Last year, there was a last summer, Greece elected a new president who is is fairly right wing and quite quickly and quite systematically have been taking away refugees rights. So Malakasa camp is outside of Athens it's about 40 minute train ride away and, and Malakasar itself is, is a village with with very little to do and one tiny tiny supermarket and a refugee space a lot of hostility from the from the local population and so uh, this a train that 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 goes to Athens was an absolute lifeline for these people and because of their situation they were previously allowed to travel on this train for free. Um, and after the new government was elected, they started charging them as, as they would myself or, or, or Greek people. And so they, they have to pay eight euros for a train fare, which if you're living on a, you know, if you, if you are even able to get financial support, you would get 150 euros a month. And so eight 
euros for a train journey that people normally do every day you know Athens is their lifeline it's where they access food potentially employment opportunities uh, socializing um, education it was really really quite crippling um, and so that was kind of the beginning of the impacts of this new government that we saw they've also been taking away rights such as previously if you when, when you have your asylum application and it, and if it's rejected you know but first they don't see that you need to seek asylum you you don't need to be protected then you would get two more tries so basically previously you, you were able to try three times to apply for asylum and now it's just one um, which is actually a, a breach of international human rights um, and asylum rights but it seems that they're just doing that anyway in the past month since um, Turkey opened its borders and, and Greece was of course incredibly hostile and, and not letting refugees come into the country. Um, but if any people did manage to come in, they're not able to apply for asylum, which is again, a, a, a massive breach of human rights. Um, so yeah, we, we really quickly saw a change in policies since this new government was elected. Um, and one of them being in December, the government somewhat understandably wanted to have all registered NGOs operating in Greece under one succinct list, one succinct register. Um, and so there was an application process for that and all NGOs put it in and we are still waiting to hear. So four months later, we still, a lot of NGOs technically are uh, operating illegally within the camps just because they don't have their permission. And it's not through lack of trying myself and my colleagues went actually went to Athens ourselves to speak to the Greek government to speak to the ministry to see if there was anything that we could do to you know push this along and help the process and and would you believe that the there is simply one person in charge of accepting or rejecting all NGOs in Greece just one person is doing that job so of course it's taking months and we absolutely don't know when when or if we'll be able to have formal permission to to work in camps, a lot of grassroots organizations and a lot of grassroots response are there because of the failings of the government. You know, we're filling in the gaps of the government, be it addressing mental health or be it education or be it food or be it NFI, non-food items or clothing. That's why we're there. That's what we're doing. So for the government to, you know, technically make it illegal for us to enter the camp is, has been really crippling. That's that's horrible to hear. I think that's often a challenge everywhere is mm. trying to negotiate government systems as well, which are inherently very political rather than humanitarian focused. Um, that's that's hugely troubling. Absolutely. I just just a quick thought on um, on coronavirus and what's the situation for you at the moment mm. and refugee. So Malakas is actually the second camp to have confirmed cases of COVID-19. Um, so we'd shut the gym and all services had stopped already a couple of weeks before these confirmed cases. But yeah, it's only the second camp. The other, the other camp is also just outside of Athens, so not that far away. Um, and so they're on complete lockdown. So there's, there's police presence around the camp. They're not allowed to, they're not allowed to leave the camp. They are allowed to leave their containers and and walk around the camp, but obviously, you know, adhering to social distancing. But it's very difficult. And I honestly speculate that there is coronavirus in other camps. You know, 
how could there not be, honestly, in a camp like Moria on Lesbos or Vial on Chios, when relatively speaking, Malakasa is one of the better camps, you know, people, there are people living in tents, um, but there are also water facilities, you know, it's nothing like Lesbos, where you have one tap per 1300 people, it's, it's, it's not that dire. And so I honestly speculate that other camps absolutely do have coronavirus, but they, they're, there's not enough testing, or they haven't been tested, or there's a denial, um, which is really scary for when you know, that there, there will eventually be that realization that other people are suffering in already really dire circumstances. Yeah, something that's very troubling, I think, at the moment with, with coronavirus mm. is, is that it is going to hit the, the people in the most dangerous situations the hardest, and they don't have the ability to isolate and to sanitize in the same way that I think a lot of Western governments imagine that their populations do. I think they don't even understand their own populations half the time. So, yes, it's, it's a very concerning thing and there's no media focus on them at all because obviously no, the media absolutely. focus is elsewhere so Rick, i've given what you just said with what's going on now um out in greece and the whole situation like what does the future hold for refugium and yourself i know it's a bit of an uncertain situation right now but what are the next mm. steps basically well first and foremost um as soon as this is over and you know borders are opened again and, and i can travel um i will be going back to Malacasa just to, to, to be with the community again and support them. Um, and I imagine that after this morale will be very low. So I just personally want to be present with this community um, and to know that I'm there to support them. And you know, if they want to help get their energy and enthusiasm back up for refugium. And we're also looking at expanding as well. So uh, before coronavirus hit, we were looking to go to Chios, one of the Greek islands with the notoriously awful camps. A community center has become available and another NGO want to partner with us to bring Refugium over there. So that's really exciting. So what we'll be doing is taking Refugium as a, a model, a sustainable model and implementing it in another place. So that's really exciting. So when we will be able to do that is, um, yeah, we'll be heading out to Greece uh, with a team to, to set it all up on Chios as well. I was just wondering if that is successful, which it sounds like it, it should be based on all the great work you've done so far. Do you have plans to expand even wider and take it uh, more globally? Yeah, that is something that we would be looking into. So having worked in, in only Greece since I graduated, um, Greece does tend to be my speciality, but I, I have been thinking about that a lot, actually. I don't see why we couldn't take it as a model elsewhere. You know, there are refugee camps all over the world. So that is a long-term goal, definitely, for it to be a sustainable project that we could copy and paste in, you know, within different vulnerable communities. So if people are keen to follow that journey and see what happens next and to support you in uh, going through this challenging time and hopefully developing and spreading the project uh, and it's very, very worthwhile goals, where can people find you? What's What social media links have you got? How do people keep in touch with you? Mm. So we have a website, which is uh, refugym.org. That's R-E-F-U-G-Y-M. Um, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, a big, lovely orange logo of, of, of three people supporting each other. You can't miss it. It's very bright. <laughs> <laughs> so that's on Instagram. You're just at refugym. Uh, refugym underscore. And then facebook.com forward slash refugym one. 
That is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today and um, Thank you. for chatting to all of us as well. It's been actually really eye-opening for, for, for me just to, to learn, I'm sure, for all of us to, to learn and, and discover more about Greece because we mainly know about, about Calais and northern France mm. and Dunkirk. And so actually, I think that we discuss is that it's all connected across Europe. It's a whole, you know, Absolutely. migration route. And actually, you know, it's just each each part is a small part of this whole system. It's uh, a lot of the people that we actually come into contact with, of course, have gone through that whole journey. So mm. it's really important that there's support all the way through and that we all understand and try and work together better. So this is, it's really, really, really wonderful to talk to you. So thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge you. with us. I, I just wanted to thank you for reaching out to us, finding us to come and, uh, get in contact with us so that we could have this really interesting interview and, and share this with everyone yeah no thank you I, I i came across your podcast and i and i really loved the content and your particular focus on on grassroots response so yeah thank you for having me i just want to do like a, a shout out to the people who are still very much in greece um having to ramp up their operations because of coronavirus as i mentioned food kind already they're of course very dear to my heart having been their coordinator but they have had to have gone from feeding a thousand people to feeding three thousand people pretty much overnight since the camp went into lockdown and of course people aren't allowed to go outside and go to the supermarket shout out to Rema as well a spanish organization who, who is still very present very much on the ground supporting the people day to day and you know they're, they're the same as key workers anywhere in the world they're effectively uh, risking their health uh, to help other people so yeah I just wanted to a big shout out uh, to those guys because what they're doing is incredible despite all odds and despite all of the difficult circumstances they're still there so thank you to them as well. Well thank you to you for highlighting those to us as well and hopefully anybody listening will be able to keep in touch with all of those organizations and, and follow the work you're doing because it's absolutely critical and has been critical for many years and will continue to be so we imagine so thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Britt. Thank you. So that's it for our interview with Britt. A huge thank you to her for coming on. At, uh, I've learned a huge amount. And The Great Unknown will be back in a couple of weeks with our promised episode on dystopias as we start up season two with our new series of in-depth looks on different themes and our cultural explorations. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. Give us a like, a share, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and you get all this great content and more wonderful interviews with great people like Brit delivered straight to your device.